Welcome to the Hospitality Mavericks podcast with me, Michael Tingsam. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. This episode was my first face-to-face conversation since lockdown started. And I was very lucky to pick up some time with the very caring operator, Ed Heller, the founder of Educurian Guild, which operate a number of kitchens across Brighton. And they are on a mission to do more than just make profit, but do good through food. Ed tells how they responded to the pandemic by helping raising money and making food for people in need across Brighton. He tells us they right now have fed more than 100,000 people since lockdown started. Isn't that just incredible and amazing? He also gives us a clear understanding on how you put people first and how this is the only way to build a business you can be really proud of and have long-term success with. We also discuss the pros and cons of the eat-out scheme from an independent point of view. Ed also gives his recipe for bouncing back and what he thinks the future looks like for independent restaurants. Ed will make you rethink things and he has some super insight and advice. So grab headphones, coffee, notebook and enjoy. Today we are we are doing our first uh, face-to-face interview since lockdown and uh, I've been very excited about that. So excited that uh, we, we struggled getting started a bit because I just had to get around the technology again. But hey ho, that's how to go. But we actually gone out locally in Brighton and we are meeting a local operator and uh, somebody that has uh, been working all the way through lockdown and done some amazing things to help people out there, both uh, people that's homeless, but also other people in hospitality. And Ed, he can tell that story in a minute. And we're going to be talking about a lot of other things, the eat out scheme, what it means for a local operator, the, the, the special model he runs by running in pubs and so on. But Ed, he will tell more about that. So welcome to the podcast, Ed. Thank you. And Ed, uh, we met uh, a couple of months ago on Twitter because you were, uh, at that point, you were, you were tweeting about all the good you were doing to help pe- feeding people. We'll come back to that in a second. But for the people who don't know who Ed is, uh, if they're not from Brighton and haven't seen you on Twitter, where you have some very strong opinions, or say it's, it's, it's dare to be different opinions, not what I call the maverick opinion about things. Who is Ed and how do you end up in hospitality and where are you now with your business? Uh, okay, oh gosh, where to start? Um, I actually came to, to hospitality quite late in my life, probably only about, um, about six years ago uh, when I ended up running franchise here in Brighton uh, in, in a pub. Um, it wasn't too long before I, I shifted to a head chef position uh, in the village where I live in Hampshire. Um, we achieved a Michelin Bibramond, uh, an AA Rosette. Um, I moved on from there to another kitchen. Uh, we achieved two Rosettes, good food guide reviews and such. Um, I ended up running an English vineyard, fine dining restaurant and wedding venue. Um, but I, I, was, I was drawn back to Brighton um, about two years ago uh, after freelance chefing around the, the UK. And we've, we've come back to Brighton to operate what locally is known as the, the franchise model. Um, it just gives me a lot of food freedom um, an ability to run my own business, um, put my own stamp on things, but from within the security of other businesses. 
Yeah, so you run kitchens for yes. the audience out there within pops. That's right, yes. Yeah. Um, it's locally known as a kitchen franchise uh, situation. I'm not sure if that's the best way of describing it, a franchise. Um, we're not taking on someone else's brand. I look at us as a, a food management company. Uh, we're a catering firm that comes in and we manage the food operations as a third-party company. So a pub will say to us, here is our kitchen. I'll say thank you very much. We put our own staff in, we write our own menus, we do our own ordering, our own marketing. Um, but from a customer point of view, for intent and purpose, they, they wouldn't even know that there's a, a separate team. It's just a, a pub they go to to eat. And we just happen to fulfill the back of house duties. And prior to, you said six years ago, you were yes. into the hospitality journey. So that's not many years then being owning. But what did you do prior to that? Because you, you have a background within business. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had sort of small businesses before. Um, I worked a lot in, in marketing and public relations at a point. Um, nothing like hospitality, really. Um, I'm very politically minded at times um, that people might might grasp from my my Twitter feed, um, but not, nothing that would strike out as a, a full blown career like hospitality is. And uh, what what made you? Because like most people say that you know uh, hospitality is the, the kind of thing you you run into in a very young age and it grows on you. And I did that myself, and many have that journey. But what at that point in your life, what made you shift into hospitality, and what was it that attracted you? Because again, that's that's a massive career shift from marketing to. No, absolutely. Um, I suppose opportunity um, want of a different pace of life um, if I knew what I know now six years ago I would have probably sat myself down and had a word about that but um, it is I mean and hospitality has got to be one of the most welcoming inviting rewarding industries that we we have here in the UK um, okay it's not without sin there are incredibly long hours um, there is low pay to contend with in certain areas there's a lot of in- inequality that exists uh, amongst hospitality employees um, but it is it is a wonderful industry and the people within it um, are, are like second families to their colleagues so in that sense uh, I think it has it does have an amazing sort of um, an amazing ability uh, to attract people yeah, and um, I totally agree with you. It's a bit of a, uh, some of my friends we've been in our life, we, I talked with one here this morning, we called it the drug. You know, you, you can't just yeah. go out of it. He, he's try, He's been trying it over a couple of years, doing some other things. He always end back in some kind of way into the hospitality. So you're right about it. Either, either you have it or not. And I have similar conversation with my friends I grew up with as well. Yes. And uh, how many uh, franchises do you operate as it is in the moment in the Brighton area? I operate um, three franchises. Uh, I operate a further site that's, that's not a franchise, but I, I co-operate a site on the outskirts of Brighton. And uh, I have a catering team that uh, it still was during lockdown, but still uh, providing food assistance uh, to ho- homeless rough sleepers uh, across the city. Yeah. And what what uh, happened when the lockdown hit your business? Uh, because there has been, you know, there's a crazy period. But if you just go quickly back and assess that, because I think that's very important to why we sit here today. So you, the 15th of March to the 18th of March, that's where for most people a lot of 
closing there, down started? There, there was. We, we noticed a distinct drop-off in trade. Um, you know, we could have gone in one of our sites from a £6,000 week down to a £1,000 week where customers weren't sure whether they should or shouldn't come in. Has the government told us to shut, leave, not go in? And no one was quite sure. There was a, a lot of uncertainty. Um, yeah, it, it was... It was quite a stressful time for the industry, not knowing how you were going to operate, what was going to happen. And then the government obviously made the decision that we we were to shut. So, of course, we did. Um, I'd say for the first two weeks of lockdown, I probably had exactly the same experience as 95% of the UK. I'd get up in the morning and make my wife breakfast from scratch, you know, some little English muffins, you know, we'd cure some bacon, we'd, we'd cook a nice little breakfast. And as we we're finishing that, I'd say to her, what do you fancy for lunch? And I'd sit there from about nine o'clock in the morning, scratch making lunch and into dinner. And yeah, we, we ate like kings for the first few weeks. And then I get a phone call one day saying, uh, Ed, there's, um, there's some homeless people in Brighton. Are any of your kitchens open? And for the last 18 months, we've actually been supplying and donating um, food uh, to the severe weather emergency protocol centers in Brighton. So when there's incredibly low temperatures and they shelter extra homeless people overnight, uh, extra rough sleepers, we provide the food for that, which could be anything from 20, 30 meals up to 60, 80 meals a night for them. Um, so we, we had a history of doing it and that they asked the question and we said, yeah, we, we can open a kitchen for it. It's, it's not a problem. How many meals do you need tonight? Well, it, it could be up to 150. Um, a little bit of bat and ball um, back and forth over the next week. Um, we finally got the go-ahead to start cooking, and our numbers were 291. Mm. 291 rough sleepers being housed in hotels uh, around Brighton. Um, and we put together a team that, that started cooking. Um, we, yeah. We, we cooked a hot meal every single day for them, seven days a week. Um, another part of the team fulfilled breakfast and brunch packs. And that, that went on with, without a break through lockdown. Um, it meant that we didn't actually furlough any of our staff. Um, it meant that we kept our teams together, kept them cooking. And it meant that they actually had a real positive impact, uh, not just for the homeless. We produced nearly 15,000 meals um, for frontline NHS nurses working on COVID wards. We put together meals for food banks through churches and through job centers. Uh, anyone that essentially needed feeding, if we had the capacity to, we'd, we'd generate meals for them. Um, we're, we're very, very lucky that uh, the council have now um, approved extra funding to take that through until the end of the year. So we're, we're incredibly, um, not grateful, but we're, we're incredibly humbled to be part of this experience that we're making such a positive impact on people's lives at the moment. Um, again, not without challenges, you know, Come the 4th of July, we reopened. So chefs would leave kitchens and go back to our original kitchens. But we still have a team working seven days a week in Brighton, still feeding people. Still feeding people. How many meals in total are we up on? Um, I stopped counting uh, weeks ago, um, about 85,000. I'd, I'd imagine now we're probably knocking on for around the 100,000 meal mark. Wow. Um, wow, wow. And Amazing. Well done. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Um, not letting up, though. There's, there's still plenty of food poverty in Brighton. What was it that, that ticked that in you you just knew straight away? I need to do that. Of course, we need to help people. Though. There must have been something like, okay, this is what we just need to go and do. Um, well, I, I think as a chef, I have this, this part of me that just needs to feed people. You know, people come into the restaurant or into the pub to eat and... Uh, 
you know, if they're, they're looking at a menu and they're not sure, and they want, you just want to feed people. Yeah. I think that that's part of it. Some a friend of mine, Fiona, describes it as um, as the, the Jewish mother in someone. Um, she is a, a Jewish mother herself and, and feeds like there's no tomorrow. Um, and it's that, I think there's a natural part of some people that just need to feed and, uh, and nourish people. Um, so yeah, if, if they asked the question, it was a it was a no brainer. Of course, we were going to step up, and my staff said the same even before we even got the the phone call. My my youngest member of staff, Joe, he's um, just turned eight, just turned nineteen. Sorry, uh, university studying a business management degree, um, and he said, "I'm I'm not going to go home to Exeter. I'm going to stay in Brighton. And if you need help feeding the homeless, as and when that happens, I'm, I'm going to be here to do that." So um, I'm incredibly blessed to have good good people. And what did this, you know, you said that they, it was first of all, the people who got the food, that's amazing for them. And, you know, they didn't get hungry. Also, I saw on Twitter, you were helping people that was a, in a food crisis if they lost their job in hospitality early on in the, in the, in the pandemic. Uh, how, how did that come around? And how did you find out there's actually people here that's worked in the front line that suddenly, you know, barely can pay the rent and, and feed themselves? Um, I think that it's a very obvious thing in hospitality that, there was a real threat that if people didn't come back to dine with us and to drink with us, that we were going to have to face a real possibility of making redundancies. Margins in hospitality are incredibly tight. With VAT sitting at 20% and not reclaimable on food items, it's a really tough industry to make your margin. And the difference between 20 empty seats and 10 or 40, whichever way we go, um, that's the difference between hiring and firing and making people redundant. So uh, with sites choosing not to reopen, there, there was always going to be high levels of, of redundancy, unemployment and potentially food poverty. Um, and again, going back to the wonderful people in hospitality, when we started this this project feeding people, um, we, we put a shout out and just said, look, if there's a spare chef that can give us a push or someone that can come in and help us box, let me know. And uh, it, it was amazing. Everyone that stepped up um, came from the hospitality companies around Brighton that probably operated a stone's throw from where I operate some of my sites. Um, people I'd known previously, people I hadn't known, but all people that would come in five days a week, sometimes seven days a week, um, unpaid as volunteers, just to, if need be, you know, decant fruit from a delivery and, and store it in a fridge. They gave their time without question just to turn up and be part of something. So I knew that if there was a possibility that some of these people could lose their jobs, I felt that we kind of had a moral obligation to actually repay that favour. Mm. Um, they, they, they've been incredible. So we, we did, we put out a tweet, which is how you and I first interacted, that said that I, I know it's a really tough time at the moment, but I don't want anyone to feel that they're ever in a situation where they, they won't have food in their stomach. That's the most upsetting thing, not as a chef, but as a human being, that someone's going hungry. Um, I've got kitchens, I've got staff, I'm fortunate enough to still be open. So if you're hungry, please come down and we will feed you. No questions asked. And uh, what did it mean for, for your staff to be part of that? And when you came back and opened on the 4th of July, have this brought you closer together, I guess, because suddenly it's a different mission than just getting a business running? Um, I've always been incredibly lucky to have really good staff. We invest really heavily in their welfare, for instance. Um, we try to promote four-day working weeks. I appreciate their long hours in kitchens. So we try and give people three days off a week. It, it's not always possible. People might be sick. There might be holiday. There, there could be any reason. But as a typical rule of thumb, a four-day week. 
Um, we pay even our KPs living Brighton wage at a minimum. Um, we give them opportunities outside of the work environment on a paid-for basis. So a few weeks ago, we took our staff down to Brighton Seafront to do the litter pick with Surfers Against Sewage. If they want the extra hours on a fifth day, they can go down to the project and they can feed homeless people for a day. They can produce meals for food banks to give them a, a bit of a better balance. We have uh, an incredibly talented chef with us at the moment called Alex. Um, she was actually a biomedical scientist uh, until she decided for a career change. So it's not just me. Mm-hmm. Um, she completed college. Um, she went to work at a, a local restaurant that had a couple of rosettes. She's in, incredibly talented, um, more so than she even realizes. And I appreciate the food she's cooking with us at the moment for it doesn't actually stretch her. Um, so we're arranging for her to go and do stage in other restaurants of chefs that I know that will challenge her and she will learn. So we, we try and invest really heavily in our staff. So we've always had a really good team. Um, and, yeah, nothing was more apparent than when we asked them, you know, don't go on furlough. Don't sit at home doing nothing, sitting in your garden, sunbathing. Come in, <laughs> work eight hours a day over a stove and feed some people, please. And not, not one of them said no. They, they all came in. So we, we've always had that really tight-knit team where yeah. we, we appreciate that sometimes there's a bigger story than just, just service. And uh, how how have it uh, from from a business point of view? You've been doing this together, working together with different organization, founding funding. How from a business point of view, uh, being through all this and then now starting trying to come back, how how has that affected you? And how are you trying to to bounce back now into normal business gear? Yes, um, I suppose I'm, my time personally is still quite divided. Um, again, I'm fortunate enough to have. An amazing team. So the homeless project. I have a chef called Lindsay, a great chef. She's from an events catering background, which sadly means for her at the moment there is no work because there's no weddings. So for Lindsay, we've managed to give her work, which is great for Lindsay, someone that's not um not having to claim benefits. Um, and for me, I have someone that's that's absolutely amazing, sort of um, heading up that kitchen for me. But trying to balance the responsibility of feeding these people whilst reopening businesses that rightly deserve my my entire attention and focus. It's it's a lot of early mornings and a lot of late nights, um, but we, we've just about got there. Yeah. And how it's been coming back? How's the the first, what are we in, seven weeks in now? Six, six, almost seven weeks into the trading since the 4th of July? Um, they've been a bit of a roller coaster. Um, not knowing has been the hardest thing. Government guidelines were a little bit vague, sometimes a little bit sudden. Um, it, it's meant a lot of trying to do what you feel is best um, to protect your staff and to protect your customers. Um, there's a lot of discrepancy across the entire industry. I ate out summer the other day with my children, and whilst they had an app to stop me having to have a waitress at my table, there was no PPE to be seen anywhere not more by staff they still came to our table to deliver food drinks clear table checks um, compared to some sites like some of ours you'll come in you'll have your temperature taken you'll sign in um, on a, a log so we can track and trace you um, so all these things sort of contending with as well as trying to relaunch a business that you don't know if it's going to survive you don't know if people's buying habits have changed people's inner fear about the virus is that playing a part so i have a, a site which i've been using as a benchmark really which is the prince george on trafalgar street uh, we have a little vegetarian vegan kitchen down there that does a, a relatively consistent level of trade 
our first week reopening, we were down about 90%. Um, that's not one nine, that's 90. Yeah. That's quite a, a scary, scary yeah. number to be down. And of course, we'd fully staffed. We didn't know if we were busy or quiet. So I've got staff in my kitchen to operate at 100% and we're operating at 90. So, um, so 90% loss. Um, week two, we clawed it back a little, maybe 65% down. Um, didn't really pick up significantly until the start of August for the uh, Eat Out to Help Out scheme. That made a bit of a difference, not immediately though. We noticed that our weekend trade shifted from the weekend to the early part of the week, for instance. Yeah. We'd have Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays that felt like Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays. And then we'd get through to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and they'd feel like Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Um, which was, again, as a business, incredibly hard to predict and to star for. Um, it made, made it a real challenge. Uh, Eat Out has settled down a bit, um, not in terms of the level of trade we're doing, but Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, sorry, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays have, have picked up again now. I'd say that George now is maybe operating 10% beneath what it did on last year. Mm. which isn't a bad position to be in considering that it's only been open six weeks. Um, We're still in the middle of of a pandemic um, and that people are still being naturally cautious. So the Eat Out scheme has encouraged people to come back out, whether or not that's given them a new belief that actually, look, if we can do it on a Monday, we can do it on a Friday, it is safe. Um, I I don't know, but it has definitely helped, definitely helped um, in in general. Um, We'll we'll see how we go into September. there were rumours that it might potentially be extended. It might not. How do we try and retain the level of trade that we've we've managed to gain in the last four weeks? So it's a new set of challenges at the moment. Every week's got a new set of challenges. The uh, the eat out scheme is a, a bit like a marmite conversation. There, there's a majority definitely that likes, but there is pockets of the industry that's concerned and asking questions about it and, and, and what exactly helping is cannibalizing your weekend trade. Some say, uh, others says that if we continue this, we'll set an expectation to the consumers because they can't figure out that this is a government-backed scheme. It's the government, you know, that's not their duty to communicate that. And in principle, they are, they're just pushing a problem in front of them, the government, some people say. No, I, I think you're right there on a few things, Michael. I think... Um people's habits form relatively quickly, actually. Um, We might like to think that we have an individual uh, mindset um, as as human beings, but we we don't. As creatures, we're creatures of habit. And actually, if you start coming out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're probably going to continue going out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because the rest of your week for four weeks, five weeks has been built around that. Um, You learn habits very quickly. Um, Expectation is part of that as well. You're used to coming in and not paying as much. The price you charge for food in restaurants um, is already a matter of debate in many places. Is that a £14 dish? Do you charge that for a burger? I think people have now spent four or five weeks paying 50%. It's going to take a lot of adjustment to what is good value for money, especially with rising food costs. Um, We've already seen that off the back of the pandemic um, with certain foods going up in prices. Um, So yeah, from a consumer point of view, I, I think... The longer that goes on, if it is extended, we may be making a rod for our own backs. If we don't have it, though, we'd be empty on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for sure. As a generalized scheme, um, as a small business, there are government incentives 
the, as a small business, I'm, I'm thankful for. There are schemes that will give people 50% off of their food on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and the, the government kindly reimburses for that. Um, there are other schemes that mean I don't have to return all my staff to work if they're on furlough. Um, thankfully, none of ours are. But if, if we do return them off of furlough and we keep them employed to January, we could take a £1,000 grant from the government. And I believe there's another one that if we employ someone under the age of 24 and we keep them employed, again, if they come off of universal credit, um, again, we, we get another grant. Now, as a small business that might employ three or four people, I mean, we, we employ just under 20, but as a small business that even employs up to 20 people, how much of an impact is that going to have? If I'd, if I'd furloughed all my staff and brought them all back and... Uh, might be in line for £20,000. Um, interestingly, as a franchise, I didn't actually qualify for grants because we don't pay business rates. So we didn't have any government assistance um, throughout the pandemic. Um, I look at that, £20,000, it, it's, it's £20,000 I wouldn't have if I were in that situation. But I do look at bigger companies. Um, I look at the likes of Nando's, for instance, who have taken the 15% VAT cut and have passed that on to the consumer. Great for the consumer. It does, however, give them an unfair advantage across the market. But then we do live in a free market environment where it is competitive and nothing can stop them doing that. But, you know, it's, it's helped them out a great deal. Um, I look at McDonald's with their 120,000 members of staff who are £1,000 per person will qualify for £120 million worth of government funding. For members of staff, they would most likely have brought back to work regardless and then on top of that, we're giving them 15% less VAT to pay, and the taxpayer's also paying half the Big Mac meal. Um, McDonald's, these big companies, um, are receiving such unfathomable amounts of money. Um, it's hard to get your head around how small businesses that are genuinely struggling, small businesses that really need the help, it, aren't getting it. It's it's a level playing field. McDonald's are getting exactly the same as a small business, but actually these schemes are weighted towards big companies, not small individual independent operators and small businesses. Yeah, so what you are challenging and question is that do we actually need to have uh, different models with grants to different types of businesses because the needs are very different? I think absolutely. I mean, there, there's, there's many benchmarks and, and measuring sticks for... The viability of businesses. Um, number of employees is quite often used. If you're a small, medium business, we know that you have a certain amount of employees. Um, so they could have been limited. Actually, you know what? We will give you a thousand pound per employee, but only up to 250 employees. Great. That, that helps every small business out. And actually, it, it helps McDonald's out to an extent. But uh, that, that, that's one benchmark. VAT is another one. You know, okay, it's fantastic that VAT has been brought down to 5%. That is probably the difference between half of the restaurants around us being open today and and not having already shut. That's given us that margin of, of sort of uh, to operate within to take those initial losses. Does McDonald's need 15%? Does Nando's need 15% less VAT? I'd argue probably not. Um, people's habitual buying habits mean that McDonald's has had queues around the blocks halfway down the motorway near where I live. Um, they, they probably didn't need that, that level of support. And it, it could have been capped at turnover. It could have been linked to their, their VAT returns for the last five years, anything like that. There are measuring sticks. But 
I appreciate it's a government trying to come up with a policy quickly. It's difficult to find a model that fits all and is fair to all. Um, and as a business, I am grateful for the help we have received. I, I just feel it in hindsight, which is a wonderful thing. There were perhaps other ways or, or other incentives. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of writing there's going to be on the wall as furlough stops and business rates kicks in early next year. You have the VAT probably be brought back either to the full 20 or something in between. Uh, what kind of impact that's going to have on the industry? And I think we, we, haven't, we haven't seen anything yet. That's often my, my own personal view. I think we still have a lot of see and a lot of small businesses will struggle as they, there's no more cash to hunt uh, in a way and support anywhere. I think there's been a, a long-standing campaign to look at VAT and hospitality, um, especially in the food side of businesses. Um, you know, the, the inability to reclaim VAT because it doesn't exist on raw products, for instance, uh, means that there's always been a, an argument that hospitality should be treated differently. I mean, the, the government is really in an ideal situation where come January it can look at it and say, actually, you know what, hospitality is recovering, but we know you're not quite there yet. You know, January, February, March are the quiet months, but let's increase this to 10%. And then they can maybe increase it to 15, three months after. Maybe a staggered return would be a, a more prudent look. There's no need to return it to 20 Um most chefs might not remember, but I do, that VAT was only 17.5% once upon a time. Um, so actually, there, there's nothing that says VAT has to be 20. Some businesses qualify for fixed rates at 12.5%. Indeed, a lot of catering companies that only deal in the food side qualify to have their VAT set at 12.5%. They, they lose the ability to obviously reclaim VAT, but that's a sacrifice a lot of them will make because, as I say, raw products have no VAT. So I, I think there's a lot the government can do. Um, in terms of businesses surviving and chasing more cash, um, again, that margin at the moment, that extra 15% has helped us through. Um, Touchwood, I'm very fortunate that my sites, by and large, are operating at good levels of trade that would mean that if I needed to, I could probably actually pay 20% VAT. Um, that's not an offer to the Chancellor to pay 20% VAT, um, but I acknowledge that that I, I, I could if I needed to. What that does mean, though, is actually, you know, I can afford to pay my staff more. Um, I can give them extra hours at the moment to help make up for those of them that maybe were not furloughed through other kitchens before they joined us and have, have got COVID debt um, that, that's sort of following with them, rent arrears and things like that, so we can help pay them uh, a little bit more to deal with those things. Um, I think any company that can shouldn't rely on that 15% reduction, we should all be operating on the assumption that it's 20%. And if that means in you know, four or five months that we've got surplus cash, then that's great. We've either got surplus cash uh, to reinvest in our businesses or, or help expand or do something positive with, or your prerogative take it as a profit. But I don't think we should we should live within our means. And, and that means we should accept that it will go back up, mm. which we, we shouldn't we shouldn't be using that 15% now as our operating margins because that means we're going to leave ourselves exposed come January when that, that does potentially increase. What have you done besides you? We were talking about grants and governing incentive here. What have you done yourself to say, okay, how do I actually start future-proofing my business? What kind of initiatives have you put in place? Because you've been extremely busy <laughs> feeding people and also just bringing the business back. Okay, so um, we've... 
we have actually looked at future proofing um, in terms of the next few months. Um, you know, conversations are obviously being had. Is there going to be a second lockdown? Is there going to be a second peak? Uh, all, all these questions, um, which mean that in two months, what do I do if suddenly all my sites that are now fully staffed and fully operational, what happens if they shut down? Um, again, we are we are feeding the homeless still. Um, we're feeding them till the end of the year, so I will always find work for my chefs. Um, but in terms of future-proofing the whole business, um, Deliveroo's done quite nicely during lockdown. Um, I would have quite liked to pick up shares in their company before COVID hit. Um, we have put together a new concept. Um, it's called dough, is uh, in pizza dough. Um, that, that's exactly what it is. We've we've put together a pizza company. Um, we're hard at work at the moment, actually training former rough sleepers um, mm. down at the food project. Um, we've offered them full time permanent contracts. Uh, again, paying Brighton living wage. And we're giving them kitchen training. They're learning their way through KPing, veg prep, and eventually they'll learn how to handcraft pizzas. Uh, the idea behind this company is that you know you can jump on Deliveroo, just eat. Um, you can order a pizza from Dough. Your pizza will be made by a former rough sleeper. The profits from that company will go back to funding food poverty and homelessness charities across Brighton. Amazing. Um, but that, that's a level of our future proofing. We're looking at the delivery concept and the fact that deliveries can still take place, which means we can protect jobs. It's obviously not just the homeless people that work in, in those kitchens. We have other chefs that work alongside them. We have re- regular staff. So it, it's a way of actually protecting everyone's jobs. And should the country lock down again, it's a way of the public actually supporting people that are really in need in terms of food banks um, through the profits that we donate to producing more meals for them. And, uh, and and this is operational as it is today? Uh, not today. We, we have the pizza ovens in. We're, yeah. we're cooking pizzas. We're working closely with um, uh, a PR person uh, from London that specializes in optimizing for Deliveroo and, um, and Just Eat. We want to make sure that when we actually launch that the product is incredibly solid, not just the pizza, but the brand image behind it to give the the project the best chance of survival in what is an incredibly competitive industry to sell takeaway pizzas here in Brighton. Yeah. Um, we're probably about about six weeks off. So I'd hope by the end of September we'll be operational. Um, we're lucky to have three sites that all have pizza ovens, which means our delivery um, scope uh, stretches from Portslade right the way through to, to Coldine, Whitehawk, right the way across Brighton. So we can encompass the whole city and, and hopefully sell some pizzas keep some people in work and go on to feed some more people. And you created a, a new revenue stream within that as well and a new business model you normally didn't operate before yeah, that, which I mean, is um, the dark kitchen. We are, uh, yes, uh, essentially. I mean, we're um, we're sat in um, in the Stoneham at the moment. My largest pizza oven is actually in this pub. Mm. Um, we, we could probably push out uh, 24 pizzas every couple of minutes from here if we wanted to. The pizza oven's that large. Um, so not a dark kitchen in a sense it's fully open to the public they can come in and order a pizza and if they come in and order a pizza again we do make a donation to a food poverty charity yeah so um anyone that's been dining with us in the last few months revenue has already gone to produce meals uh for food banks around brighton through um a a local company um community interest company called give a fork uh, which was started by a colleague of mine ben 
Um, ben Murray uh, wants hospitality to try and solve uh, the food poverty problem in Brighton by asking chefs like me to produce meals. So the revenue we take from dough produces meals for Ben to take out to, to various food banks. So yeah, it produces um, it produces a revenue stream. Um, it's not a profitable revenue stream in a sense. We we are a profit-making company, um, but we operate it as a department within. So we ring fence the money we make from that. That profit from that part of the company won't go to pay employees or stock for another part, even in the same building. That profit is ring fenced. Um, so we, we know exactly where it's going and how many people we're helping. What is interesting here is that you you going beyond that normally what a business owner you would take care, which I am a big believer and I think that's where many hospitality businesses will go. They will have these different arms of businesses. I'm involved in a business myself in London where we've done similar thing and uh, it's that thing you you do it because you have this hunger to feed people or you you need to help people because you're so close to poverty when you work in hospitality you're just a step away from the payment many times because you understand these people they're living on very very small money already you know when you they're not surviving how it is to have that life and helping out many kind of way what i think is interesting is that this thing about i've been talking with a couple of people is that how can hospitality be more than ever involved in solving the big problems of the world so problems around individual people's life so homelessness communities issues planet issues with you know uh, environmental catastrophe coming around the corner how can we because people eat three times a day and you can really impact people through food no absolutely i think the industry has an immense responsibility um i don't i don't honestly know i don't honestly believe it's in the right place at the moment to actually affect that change though I don't think the industry's ready to try and affect that change. There are fantastic pioneers out there. I mean, we've we had um, Doug from Silo here who opened up Brighton's first ever zero waste restaurant. Um, you know, Doug, in a sense, was a pioneer in zero waste. We've we've always tried to reduce waste in our kitchens, um, especially single-use plastic waste. I mean, for instance, if you come into any of my kitchens and look in the sink, you won't find single-use sponges. Um, that's that's plastic to landfill. We we actually grow loofah. Um, back on our small holding in Hampshire and that loofah is then dried out and we've now got a completely organic quite abrasive sponge that people can scrub pans with and then you know after a day we can pop them in the washing machine and wash them and recycle them so um, things like loofah so I mean on a small scale yes I think it would take high profile hospitality the likes of your um, you know celebrity chef your, your more recognizable face to, to start pushing and leading the way on this um, Jamie Oliver, um, you know, again, a bit of a Marmite character to a lot of chefs, um, has tried chack- tackling uh, childhood obesity, for instance. Um, I-, I think there's a lot of individual responsibility, um, but I think until until hospitality start treating their own people better, I don't really think we have the moral authority to dictate how the world treats other people. So it's yeah. showing the change you want to be in principle in any kind of scale you can do it because yeah. everything matters in the end. Absolutely. Um, you know, the the working conditions, um, that makes it sound like they're in sweatshops at gunpoints. My staff honestly aren't. Um, we we have long hours. You know, there's quite often very little thanks in hospitality. Um, the pay isn't great, especially for front of house people. Um, chefs, to a, a better extent, have got a skill set. So they get a bit better pay, but there's, there's very little thanks. Um, I always remember um, an ops manager I had um, 
when I headed up that two rosette kitchen. Um, I had an ops manager called Stephen, and he took all the chefs aside one day, and he's like, "Listen, guys, you know, no one's ever going to say thank you. There, there's no magic pat on the back." He said, but what you've got to understand in hospitality is that you honestly have this ability to change people's lives. He says, you're probably going to shrug it off and not think too much about it. He said, but people are going to come in today and they're going to break bread and they're going to dine with friends, family. He said, tomorrow, some of them are going to move to Australia, some are going to get hit by a bus and some of them are just, you know, they're going to speak to others again. He said, and they're going to remember this last meal together and they're not going to remember it for what they spoke about or this. They're going to remember whether or not the food looked pretty on the plate. They're going to remember whether or not the cutler is straight on the table. He said, and they won't remember it for those things, but how you treat these people, how you set the table, how you serve them, all these things will create either a positive or a negative experience. If they come in and the table's messy, they might not note that the table's messy, but it impacts on their experience, he says. And you've got this ability to make sure that they leave having this positive experience and positive memories. And, and yeah, sure enough, I mean, I, sh I shrugged that off like he said I would um, until a few years later when I was running the vineyard. And um, as a chef, uh, only a few years, but a chef of a few years, I'd escaped Christmas lunch for, for many years. My first ever Christmas day that I opened was on the vineyard. We lived there and it made sense to open the restaurant. Um, but we opened it for staff and their families. So we filled our restaurant with you know, Sam, my assistant manager, uh, Charlie, who ran our wine tours, and all their families. It was a big extended Christmas lunch. Um, and a few days before Christmas, I'd had Kerry, who was my drinks rep, say to me, I don't suppose I could be cheeky. Could, could we get a table for Christmas lunch? Um, Kerry's two young sons, uh, Oliver and Louis, um, 18 and 16, uh, were actually carryouts at my weddings that we used to do on site. Um, of course, you know, staff, family, bring them all. And so Carrie came down with Oliver Louie, um, Daisy, her 11-year-old daughter, Mark, her husband. Um, they had Christmas lunch, you know. Table was set perfectly, made a real effort with the food, absolutely loved it. Uh, two days later, Daisy found her dad um, passed away on the kitchen floor, quite sadly. Incredibly traumatic for them. Um, really, really awful for the family. Um, but when it came to the wake, they picked the vineyard. And you can tell, I, I get emotional about this. Um, they picked the vineyard because it was the last place they'd come as a family and they made really good memories. And actually what Stephen said made such profound sense that I actually tell this story to every single one of my chefs. You know, even on a Sunday when that Yorkshire pudding's not sat on the plate properly, move it back because we need to make this effort. It's our responsibility to people who are probably coming out and actually spending hours, if not days of their life's wage, their salary on this food. We've got this obligation to them because actually how we do treat people in hospitality does make the difference. But then the flip side is we're not treating our own people particularly well, mm. which is why we try to do it a bit differently, as yeah. I say. And I think when hospitality is a bit more profitable, you know, not that it isn't for some people, we, we have that obligation to pass that on. You know, I, there, there's only so many handbags and pairs of shoes my wife needs. Um, so why aren't we paying our staff that, that little bit more? Um, even since the start of lockdown to now, yeah, you know, most of my staff, if not all of them, have actually had an increase in their their take home wage. Hmm. And uh, what you're playing here is also a bit more like the long game than the finite game, because one of the challenges with hospitality, I, I personally self believe, is that you go into it with a finite kind of view and profit. Yeah, because it's so hard. So you just say, I need to focus on profit. Yeah, but those things goes hand in hand. It's a bit like. No. Uh, a, a wheel that rolls down the hill. I don't think there's a single business that's profitable today that started focusing on profit. And nope. if they did, they probably wouldn't be. Um, 
this industry more than any other, but in all industry, the most important thing is people. Yes. Um, 100%. It's the relationships we form with our staff, with our colleagues, um, with, with mentors, with, with everybody. If we form really positive relationships based on respect, then those staff will stay with me longer. Yeah. If they stay with me longer, it means we can refine what we're doing. We can then, when we've got good staff and consistent staff, we can then look at our margins. And actually, we can we can work on those and we can find savings. Mm. But savings shouldn't be made in staff. Everyone's got bills to pay and food to put on their table. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the last place. So we, we always start with staff. I mean, we're, we're not perfect. We've we've got sites that we, we might struggle in, you know, the wrong member of staff at that particular site. Um, all sorts of, of things impact. But I, I think getting the right staff and treating everyone with respect and, and working towards that that end goal um it can only be good for a business yeah because you are it's a bit like uh, investing for your pension it's compounding over time because it's trust yeah. in principle it's not about only benefits it's also about how you treat them as you say it's very very spot on uh what do you think the future is if you take it down to the independent restaurants because you know there's so many different types of food service businesses catering so on but what do you think that the future looks in the next 12 to 18 months if it comes to the the independent market you know we can we can stay in brighton if you want to talk a bit about how how do you think this all going to unroll now and what uh, what are well what are we looking at i think it's an incredibly turbulent time um i'm fearful for colleagues across the industry um, in reality there are small, large, medium-sized sites right across the board who whose margins are so tight, who for whatever reason might have had a drop-off in trade. Um, I think we're going to see closures. I honestly do. Um, that can be anything from pubs through to small restaurants to large restaurants. Um, but we're already seeing it with, with large chains as well that aren't surviving um, this period, um, which is a shame. It really is. But at the same time, that's also opportunity. That means there's vacant sites for other operators that have the ability to expand to take the next step. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as the country is sort of sitting in a recession, we'll see how quickly we recover from that. Uh, the eat out scheme um, will probably pay a large part in in keeping the economy sort of moving. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to, to see to see closures. What about, uh, do you think there's some people that's talked about closure rates up to 60, 70%? Do you think that's where we are now? From That was before we opened. And now I think I think some people are going down to 45, 50, 40. That's different. Um, you know what? When, when the UK decided to vote to leave the European Union, it was a week before Jamie Oliver blamed Brexit and shut half his restaurants. It was the first week of the COVID lockdown when Laura Ashley decided that it had ruined retail for them. I think given the bounce back that we have had, and I, I do accept that that is largely due, due at the moment to the, the eat-out scheme, but given the bounce back we have had and the level we are operating at, I think if if independents don't survive now, they probably had poor financial management before. Not all of them, you know, before people start to start bombarding me with uh, <laughs> with, with references. But, um, look, you know, there's got to be some give and take. What happens if you have a quiet week? What happens if you have a quiet month? What happens if this or that? We all need flexibility in our business model. Otherwise, it's not a business model at all. Um, so if we haven't got that flexibility, then there's something wrong. I'd say that there were... 
if we were saying there were going to be closure rates of 40% before, they're probably still 40% now. Um, it's always hard to kind of put a figure on that, isn't it? But I, I think that if businesses are failing now, they were probably going to fail regardless. Okay, there will be some casualties that are directly because of COVID. But I think if they fail now, you do have to look at whether or not they would have failed regardless. And uh, within all that, uh, and you you are going out on, on this journey yourself as well as a business owner and uh, working both, you know, trying to, to launch new things, do non-profit things you're, you're suddenly running many platforms how do you uh, you said yourself it's long hours in the moment as always is the hospitality but how do you keep yourself sane and all that how do you keep yourself focused feel that you have the right energy how do you switch off um i i, I don't switch off i think um this sounds incredibly crazy um i i i actually have an incredibly keen interest in politics um that keeps me sane in hospitality because as crazy as hospitality seems at times actually you only have to look at the political spectrum for five minutes to think that actually you work with the sanest bunch of people out there um so yeah i have my outside interests i have my 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 children um my wife uh, and bits at home i make sure i get family time that's really important just like my staff have their three days off a week i i try and make sure i have at least one full day off a week um ideally two more often than not i get two um occasionally i'm lucky enough to get three a um, couple of half days, something like that. Um, I make sure I get some away time. I'm very fortunate that with my keen interest, I say politics, but it's also community. I think it's a fair way of putting it. With the work we're doing on nonprofits and homelessness, that spills over in, in, into communities. So I find myself, you know, meeting with local councillors, local MPs, discussing the food poverty situation and how we can better serve our communities. So actually, you know, it keeps me sane because I'm not entirely hospitality focused. Um, hospitality is now, like Ben is taking on a new challenge within the city and kind of redefining our role in the community. Yeah, and that's a super interesting because what you get from doing these things, I, I know that for myself, it, it's an undescribable energy and focus on the rest because that becomes so important that you can contribute to that. So you actually make sure that your other part of your business and life is orders and in order because if you drop that over there you can't do that and i've heard that other people said that as well i will still cook a service in every single one of my kitchens every week um i was in um that's how i was in here on sunday um i i I floated in on on sunday did monday here uh this week i did a full service um i do i always make sure that I, i i'm in i'm working alongside my staff especially at the moment because and these poor guys, um, this eat-out scheme means that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're, we're staffed like it's a weekend. Not one of them has actually managed to go out and eat out at half price. Um, mm. We have actually asked them where their favourite restaurant is, and we're actually giving all of our staff a £100 voucher to go and eat in the restaurant on us on one of the other nights of the week when there's not a discount, just so they've actually had some sort of Amazing, uh, yeah. a, a perk from it. Um, my staff need to know that we appreciate them and the effort they're making. Um, so yeah, we, we, we've made that small gesture to them. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, it's about balance really. 
And we quickly forget that again. Hospitality, thinking about taking care of our people again, like, you know, they will, they are already on a low salary compared to many others, but they can't go out and enjoy that because, of course, they need to be at work now. Yeah, it, it's almost like Christmas syndrome yeah. all over again, yeah. isn't it? Um, everyone comes out for a wonderful Christmas in a pub, but they actually forget that all the people serving them have actually postponed their Christmas to make their Christmas more special. Yeah. And it's the same Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I think I've read several articles this week about the stress levels for hospitality and how people have higher expectations. Uh, I heard the argument of, well, if you can serve 150 people on Saturday or Sunday, why can't you feed 150 people on Monday or Tuesday? But but quite simply put, people people's actual daily habits are different on those days of the week. On a Saturday or Sunday, they can come in any time from 12 till 9. And we spread those people over an entire day. On a Monday or Tuesday or a Wednesday, for instance, they're going to work. They're not coming in. They're, um, they're actually coming in 6.30 to 7.30 at night to eat their dinner. So we're trying to feed 150 people in that, that bottleneck. So it, it is incredibly stressful. Um, and as much as people sort of point out that everyone's trying their best, it's busier times, um, not all the public, but there, there have been some people that are a little unforgiving. Um, I, I think people need to appreciate what hospitality are doing. Um, you know, these staff are in here every single day, um, working in close proximity to lots and lots of strangers um and that's that's a risk you know that's a risk they're taking it's, it's not like any other job where you can distance yourself to an extent these people are, are literally in daily close proximity to hundreds of different people taking that risk back to their families and people need to kind of take a step back and remember that it's not like being a frontline nurse and not taking anything away from that but hospitality really have sort of stepped up and um and are really trying to help people get back to a new normal I would totally agree with you. And um, in the end of the conversation, I always ask for top three advice to, to other leaders out there. What is your top three advice thinking about where we are right now as an industry? What what would you like people to reflect and think about as leaders out there? Um, individual responsibility is probably the, the biggest thing. Um, I literally came from a a lunch meeting where I was talking about individual responsibility and it it not being an industry-wide thing. Yeah, we can all set examples on a, a macro level. Um, people, people are the most important asset our companies and in our industry have. Invest in them. Um, we have to invest in our people and treat them better. You know, if that means we have to put the prices up on food to be able to pay them, you know, put something at the bottom of your menu and just say. You may notice prices have increased by 5% this week. This is so that we can pay our staff the living wage. I can't think of a single person that would think that's a horrible thing. Um, and three, yeah, got our boots on the ground sometime. I will always come into my kitchen and my cook because I, I need to know what's going on in a sense. But you know, we, we have to lead from the front. Um, leaders don't take... Leaders don't tell people what to do. Leaders show people what to do. We, we have to lead by example. Um, if that means that a, a restaurant manager rolls up his sleeves and goes and actually does a shift on the floor or uh, an owner like myself who happens to be a chef goes in and cooks at a stove and bits, we, we have to be there kind of you know on the cook line with our staff um, and be part of it with them. So, yeah, absolutely. It's treat your people right and make sure you're connected to your business know it from the, the ground up especially now um, and set that example 
It's so interesting. I think you all great advice, all of them, but especially the one get out in the front line and be involved because mm. also the the people I've heard that has, you know, they're bouncing back. This is exactly what the CEO is doing. They have again redefined their habits that they said they had some very bad habits about meetings and behind the desk. They're actually out there now serving that pine, doing that thing to understand how it works. And they, they you know, one of them had been a KP through lockdown and he says like I was shocked about what I learned. I thought that was not how we did it. Mm. And it's my it's my fault, he said. I buy responsibility because I haven't really cared enough to go out and look. Yeah. And it's interesting. I'd imagine there's, there's probably not a single head chef out there that in the last year or two hasn't looked at an invoice that's come in and said, how much does that cost? Had no idea we were paying that for that. Mm. Now, that's the head chef. I'm, I'm once removed. Imagine what would happen if I looked at invoices but I look at my invoices almost monthly. Um, I will know if we can switch to a cheaper supplier for a particular line. And it's because we're so involved and so hands-on that that means we're more viable. Yeah. If, if you're not hands-on and don't understand how your business is operating on the front line, then all you're doing is chasing profit. And as we've already said, that's, that's not how viable businesses operate. Amazing. Ed, thank you so much for, for, for your time. And, uh, are sending you and all your projects and your team members all the power, energy, and love they need to uh, to succeed with this. And uh, I'm sure that's going to be people reaching out to you. So where can they uh, find you if they want to reach out to where it's best? Um, I, I live on Twitter. Like um, yeah. like most people, most chefs, um, they can always find me on Twitter as um, Ethicurian Ed, yeah. um, confusingly with two Ds. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm always there and I'm always happy to interact with people. So... Um, yeah find me say hello um then yeah we'll uh, we'll, go we'll, we'll put it in the show notes and some more links and so on so people can can find all about you thank you thank you again ed for coming on that's no, been a pleasure michael thank you wow it i'm still uh, so overwhelmed and grateful at the same time how many people you'd help during the last months you and your teams are mavericks so keep on going doing good true food if you would like to get inspired by similar stories you should tune in to episode 13 and 14 staying true to Moshimo with co-founder carl jones it's a part one and two and it's another brighton maverick doing good true food if you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a like, share, rate, or subscribe to one of our channels. Tune in next time for another interview, and in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the community and download free leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com. Thanks for listening, and be maverick. Maverick.